You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. really, really good to see you guys this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I am one of the pastors here uh, at Midtown Fellowship, and I'm pumped and honored to get to be with you guys, as always, as we open up God's Word together as a little church family this morning. Uh, I'm uh, really excited for today, to be quite honest with you, because we are actually closing the book literally, on uh, our series through Philippians, which we've been in for the past three or so months. Uh, And we said kind of out the jump with this book that Philippians, in the library of Scripture, it gets characterized as one of the most joy-filled books in the entire Bible. Uh, Christians throughout the centuries and history of Christianity uh, have looked to this writing and received so much inspiration and encouragement in their faith and their discipleship to Jesus. And I believe that has been the case for us as well, that the words that we've been studying over the past three months have very specifically encouraged us in a lot of dramatic ways. Um, And honestly, in these last few paragraphs, what we're going to see today is we're actually, we're going to cover what is probably the most recognizable verse in the entire thing. The one that even if you are not a Christian, but you are a sports fan, you know this verse. Philippians 4.13. Maybe you memorized it when you were younger. If you know it, say it with me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well done. I think you said it with me. The microphone was kind of loud, but whatever. We're we're there. Um, It's a good verse, man. It's a good verse. It is really inspirational and really encouraging. I can remember uh, in high school, it was the verse that all of our football players would put on their cleats and on their wristbands. Uh, Old Timmy Tebow used to put it on his eye black back when he was with the Florida Gators. And it would just be used, it often gets used as this inspirational tidbit, right? That through Jesus, we can accomplish great things. That through Jesus, we can accomplish all of the goals that we set for ourselves, whether that be winning the Heisman or winning a championship or making uh, or advancing our career or whatever. I can do it through Christ who gives me strength. Now, here's what I'll say. Uh, you know what? I I won't necessarily say that that is untrue, okay? But what I will say is that that is not what this verse is actually talking about, all right? It's not actually what this verse is about. In fact, I think when we look a little bit more closely as we're going to today, we will see that this verse has far more to say to us about losing than it does how we will win. It has far more to say to us about not getting the things we want and not achieving the goals that we set for ourselves and and then how we actually gain those things. And it's a verse that has far more to say to us about joy in all circumstances than only being able to have joy with one particular outcome. And I think that'll become abundantly clear as we get in. So let's just jump in, and I think you'll quickly see what I mean. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 10, as you heard read just a few minutes ago. If you want to open up a Bible or open up your phone, we'll kind of read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little, and, and then talk a little bit more until we're done. But this is what Paul writes. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So here, when Paul talks about the Philippians' concern for him, he's talking about their generosity that they expressed towards him. So you remember uh, when we were first opening up this series, we kind of set the context, and we said that at the time, where Paul was, he was in prison. And the way this prison system worked was that the state did not provide for your basic necessities like ours does when you're a prisoner. Instead, prisoners in this system had to rely on friends and family for their provision. Uh, And the Philippians, church had generously provided these things for Paul. And so it's worth noting that before Philippians was ever a theological document, it was correspondence. It was a letter. It was essentially a thank you note from Paul to the Philippian church to express his gratitude for all the provision and generosity they had expressed towards him. And so Paul wants them to know just how grateful he is that they came to his aid and to let them know what condition he's in to let them know how things are going for him. And that's exactly how he wraps things up in these final verses. And the big theme that rises to the top is he says, hey guys, I want you to know that no matter what, I'm good. No matter what, I am actually good. Verse 11, he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm, a, I'm in need for I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content For I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, listen, guys, I am am so grateful, genuinely. I am so grateful for every bit of your support. But please know, I have learned how to be content in any and every circumstance. Don't feel bad for me. Don't pity me for where I'm at Don't feel like you haven't done enough because I have learned how to be content with this situation and with every other situation that I find myself in, which is a bit surprising, right? Like if you think about it, we've brought this up before. This is a bit surprising. Like we need to take Paul off a pedestal for a moment, all right? Like take him off his little uh, apostle pedestal and consider how difficult of a thing this would be for anybody, much less Paul, to say that I am content no matter what, that I'm good no matter the circumstance. Because contentment, like a deep satisfaction and joy in life is an elusive thing, right? Like it's an elusive thing. In verse 12, he calls it a secret. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. And the phrase, learn the secret, it's actually one word in the Greek, the word mueo. And historically speaking, it's a pretty interesting word that means to initiate into the mysteries. It was most often used in Greco-Roman religions to talk about receiving special or divine knowledge. And the point that is essentially being made is that contentment is not something that comes natural. It's not something that just comes naturally to us. It's not the default setting for human beings. It's not something that everyone has or that everyone eventually finds. It's an elusive thing. I mean, you can think, uh, if you want an example of this, you can think all the way back to our first grandparents, Adam and Eve in the garden. They can eat from any tree in the garden except one. And what do they want? The one they can't eat, right? The one that they can't have. And are we any different? course we aren't. Of course we aren't. In a world of yeses, we always want the no. There's always something that feels out of reach, right? That we believe that we that holds the keys to the good life. Always something just out of our grasp that we think, man, if I just had that, if I could just get that, then I would be okay. So it reminds me of the first time that my youngest child uh, learned about popsicles. For the record, 
Her life was filled with all kinds of delicious and nutritious and wonderful snack foods that she could eat whenever she wanted to before she realized that popsicles were ever actually a thing, before she even knew that they existed. Uh, She loved snacking on things like fruit and Cheerios. They were the highlight of her day when a mom or dad would give them to them. And then one day, she saw her older brother enjoying a popsicle. And everything changed. Absolutely everything changed. Now more Cheerios that used to be enjoyed have been thrown on the floor in a fury of angry, jealous, and discontent tears because I want what he has. This is no longer good enough. I want the popsicle, Dad. I got to have it. And this is what's natural. This is what we all do, to look at what we don't have or what someone else has and believe that that's what we really need. Like there's always a proverbial sibling in our life, isn't there? Someone or something to compare yourself to. Someone older or younger, smarter, more successful or better looking or whatever. And for us to think that, that's the ticket. That's what I need to really be okay. We want to be content, but often it just eludes us. The American writer Mark Twain once said this about it. He said, you know, you don't know quite what it is that you do want, but it just fairly makes your heart ache and you want it so. His point was that we want to find contentment. We want it, but we never quite know what it is that is actually going to deliver it to us. We never know what is actually going to do the trick. We feel like we're on the verge of finding it when we meet someone new or when we go on vacation or start a new job or fall in love. When those things happen, we feel like we are on the verge of getting it, but it's still just not quite there. Like how many of us, even this morning, could confidently say that we found it? Who could confidently say, you know what? I'm content. Like, you know what? I'm totally okay if nothing ever changes in my life. I am totally fine if things stay exactly the way they are right now. I don't want a bigger house. I don't want a different car or a different job or a different relationship. Like how many of us could honestly say those things? I doubt very many of us could. Now, maybe you're there and good for you, all right? Like certainly, maybe that's where you're at. But I know for me, I'm not always there. Like in this housing market right now, like scrolling Zillow honestly feels a little bit scandalous, doesn't it? Like it feels feels a little bit illicit, like, oh, baby, we could have that kitchen. That, That could be our life. Our house is worth how much now? All right, maybe if we sold this and found this, we can make this dream come true. And I want that. And maybe that's just me. Like, maybe you don't like scroll Zillow up till all hours of the night, and that's just what I do. But we're all drawn to the idea that if things were just a little bit different, if life just had a little something else in it, if I just had a little more money or didn't just have blank in my life, then it would feel more full and full of joy. And what's so interesting about Paul's words here and something that we've pointed out consistently in this series is that there is nothing about Paul's current circumstances that conventional wisdom would say he should be able to say these things. Nothing. He's in prison. He doesn't have any money. He's alone, no spouse. His circumstances are wildly out of his control. And yet he can say, I can rejoice. I'm content. I'm good. And right off the cuff, this tells us something massively important about contentment, that apparently contentment is not an issue of having enough. 
Apparently, contentment is not an issue about having or not having enough. And to be quite honest, like, you would think that if we looked around, we would know this by now. Like, I've shared these stats with you before, but every time we talk about the love of money and contentment, these always pop back into my mind and just blow it because it's hard for me to believe that these things are true, but they are. I mean, listen to this stuff. In the United States, there are more self-storage facilities, not units, facilities than Starbucks, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, Pizza Huts, and Wendy's combined. There are more storage unit facilities than all of those fast food places combined in America. According to the Los Angeles Times, the average American home has over 300,000 items in it. Like, I don't even know how that's possible until I go to my garage and I'm like, oh, that's how that's possible. Speaking of which, 25% of people who have two-car garages do not have room to park either car inside of it due to clutter. Don't tell on yourselves. It's fine, all right? 32% only have room for one, and for the record, guilty as charged. We consume twice as many material goods as we did 50 years ago. The average American home has tripled in size in the last 50 years, and the average American has $15,000 worth of credit card debt. And honestly, these stats are a few years old uh, now, and they've likely gotten worse since the last time I shared them with you. But the point is that they seem to expose that we simultaneously have more than we need, yet believe that we don't have enough. We simultaneously have more than we need, and we believe we just need something else in order to be okay. Social scientists have dubbed this the prosperity paradox. They say, despite living in an age of unparalleled prosperity, human contentment and happiness has not increased in proportion to increased material well-being. And yet we consistently believe that contentment is something we can find or buy. That happiness is just around the corner of this next purchase or this next promotion or pay raise. We believe that just a little bit more is when the good life will arrive, when I have a new house or new clothes or a remodeled bathroom or a spouse or a different spouse or kids or more kids or less kids or whatever it may be, then I'll be good. Then I'll be good and I'll be okay. But the simple reality is, is that is just not true. It's just not true. I've been pretty fortunate over the years to get to do uh, a good bit of traveling and engaging with ministries overseas. Uh, and one of the reasons that I really uh, honestly value those experiences so much is because of the exposure that it's provided me. So uh, what I've realized is that as an American, uh, I tend to not realize how much I have until I'm around people who don't have a fraction of it. You know what I mean? Uh, I tend to just not realize how wealthy and well-off I actually actually am. And additionally, I don't realize how little I actually need to be happy and have joy until I'm around people who don't have a fraction of what I have, but who overflow with the joy that I actually want, all right? It's in those environments that that kind of stuff just gets put out on display. And I find that to be a pretty common experience for when anybody from the West travels to the developing world. I have a friend who serves there uh, in a ministry in Kenya. Uh, and one time she was talking to one of the locals there and was just remarking, about how everyone she interacted with just had so much joy. Uh, and, she, uh, and the guy she was talking to, he, he goes, well, uh, you know, you Americans, you Americans must like feel that times 10. Like you must feel that so much more than we do because you have all those nice things over there. 
You have your iPhones and your fancy cars and, and your big houses. You guys must be the most content and joy-filled people on the planet. And she just kind of stopped and looked at him a little and a little uh, embarrassingly said, actually, um, no, <laughs> no, no, we're not. Uh, most of the people that I'm around, including myself a lot of the time, aren't really all that satisfied and happy with what we have. We're always kind of looking to the next thing. And I know that sounds like really strange for me to be saying that to you, but uh, it's actually true. And she paused and goes, do you have any ideas like why that might be? Like, why do, you, why do you think that is? And the guy responded, well, if I had to guess, I'd guess I'd say it's because when we ask the Lord to provide our daily bread, we have no choice but to actually mean it. And I found that to be pretty, pretty profound. But all that being said, what Paul is, uh, is saying here is he's not suggesting that we should get rid of our phones or downsize our house to find contentment. Like some of us may need to do that for sure, but that's not the point he's making. He says the secret to contentment, whatever it is, applies to when we both have plenty and when we have need. That it's not an issue about how much or how little we actually have. It's that becoming a person who overflows with contentment and joy in life just simply has nothing to do with what we do or do not have. Rather, the secret to contentment is something that we can learn regardless of our circumstances. The secret to contentment is something we can learn regardless of where we find ourselves. And so what is that secret? Well, that is what verse 13 is actually all about. Paul says the secret to contentment in any and every circumstance, no matter how prosperous or how impoverished it actually is, is I can do all things through him who gives me strength, through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying, I have something in Jesus that actually makes this possible. I have something in Jesus that makes this possible. The secret to facing abundance and need, prison and freedom, good times and bad, prosperity and poverty is Jesus. He's the key. In him, I have a strength. In him, I have a security and a power that enables me to face anything that life might actually throw my way. And so here's why I say that this passage has more to teach us about losing and hurting and sacrifice than it does about winning championships and accomplishing great things. It's because the message of discontentment is always telling you that you can't. The message of discontentment is always telling you that you can't, that you can't live without blank, that you can't go on, that you can't have joy if X isn't in your life. So you can't live without a spouse and be happy. It's not possible. You can't live without, that other, uh, with what, without what that other person has and expect to have a full life and have joy. You can't live below your means and give generously and expect to be okay in the future. You can't do that. And what Paul is preaching here is that through Christ, you actually can. Through Christ, you actually can, and not some sort of life that is devoid of joy and happy, happiness, but a life that is full of it, regardless of what you have or what you don't have. That in Christ, there is a strength and a power made available to you that can get you through the best and the worst of circumstances. Because here's what Paul knows and this is so important. This is what Paul knows. He knows that the very hands that formed the world, the very hands that carved out the mountains and the seas, the hands that ultimately provide shelter and food for 
every living thing on the face of the earth are the same hands that healed the blind. They're the same hands that fed the 5,000. They are the same hands that raised Lazarus from the dead. And they are the same hands that were pierced to give Paul what he really needs, salvation. And, they are, and those hands are the very same hands that he knows hold him now. These hands hold him. And he says, because I've got that, I'm good. Nothing can faze me. What do I have to worry about? If these are the hands that hold me, then I'm okay no matter what comes my way. Paul is able to look both poverty and prosperity in the eye and say, I'm good regardless because what I know is that the God who walked out of the grave has got me. He's got me. God's got me and he's all I ever really need. He says as much a few verses later. He tells the Philippians in verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Can I just be honest with you for a moment? I think that one of the reasons why contentment so often eludes and escapes us, and I would also argue one of the reasons why many of us struggle to actually live generously, if I'm honest, is because we don't actually believe God will supply our every need. We don't actually believe it. Stephen uh, Covey, in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, coined the terms abundance and scarcity mentality. Uh, he said an abundance mindset is one that believes there's plenty to go around, plenty of success, plenty of opportunity, plenty of praise, and etc., and that we can give and share freely because a win for a colleague is a win for us all. And a scarcity mindset is one that believes that everything is limited on the other hand. So there's only so much to go around, so I have to fight and scrape for my own to keep all that I have for myself. And he obviously uses these terms to talk about leadership and working with others, but I think they also have a lot of value in our conversation today as well, because truthfully, as Christians, we have every reason to have an abundance mindset. We have every reason to have an abundance mindset. In fact, discontent comes from a scarcity mindset, a belief that there is never enough. But we know the God who holds all things in his hand, who says to the cattle on a thousand hills, mine, I own you. Every shred of this world is his to do with as he pleases. Psalm 145, 16 says, you, God, open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. This is who God is. This is who he is. God is a God who satisfies our desires. God is a God who takes care of his kids. He just does. It's who he is. And this is the constant refrain of scripture. As Jesus says in the gospels, if he watches over every sparrow of the air, if he clothes every lily of the field, how much more will he care for you? How much more will he feed and clothe you if this is what he does for birds and fields? You are much more valuable than they, and this is his promise to you. If you are in Christ, this is his promise to you, and this is actually the secret of contentment. And if Paul can learn it, you can learn it too. We have the exact same spirit and the secret is Christ. You, have, you can have plenty or be in want. And if you have Christ, you will have all that you ever need. In fact, I would argue that this is actually what contentment really is. Contentment is actually the ability to say, God, you are all I need and you are enough. 
You are all I need and you are enough. And hear me, until you become willing to embrace this truth, no matter what you have or don't have, you will never actually be content. It will always escape you. It will always slip through your fingertips, no matter what may be laying in front of you. Because the kicker is, and the kicker is, is you will never be convinced that Jesus is enough until you are convinced that Jesus is exactly what you need. Think about what drives our discontentment. What drives our discontentment is a belief that this thing, whatever it may be, whether it's a relationship or money or a job or whatever, it's this belief that that thing will actually provide something for me, right? It will actually do something for me. It'll provide me perhaps a sense of security or a sense of, or a feeling of control or power over my circumstances or life. Or it'll give me an identity or a value that I don't believe that I would have without it. But here's the thing. Those desires are desires that only the one who can open his hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing can actually meet. Those desires are desires that only God can actually meet and no created thing will ever actually be able to do the trick, no matter how much we may want to believe otherwise. And this is what discontentment actually preaches to us. Our discontentment in whatever shape or form it takes in our lives isn't actually informing you about some good thing that you are missing out on. Rather, it's informing you of what you functionally believe uh, the God of your life is. Does that make sense? It's not telling you a good thing you're missing out on. It's telling you what you actually, what you actually believe will eternally satisfy, what God really is. And the truth is, is that nothing can take the place of Jesus. You were made, as the scriptures say, for eternity, and only something eternal is gonna satisfy that. Now, perhaps all of this begs the question in your mind, like, I wanna be content. Is there anything that I can actually do to like learn this secret, to embrace this? Is there anything I can do to more fully embody this secret in my life? And the truth is, I believe the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. And I have two things for us just on a practical end today to learn, to help us learn the secret of contentment. And here's the first one. The first one is to embrace your circumstances. Embrace your circumstances. So often I hear people pray for contentment and whether that's contentment in their stage of life, contentment with their singleness, contentment with their job or any number of things. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with praying for that. In fact, I think we should pray uh, for contentment. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Just so long as we realize that when we ask God for contentment, he very may well respond by giving us opportunities to actually learn it. So I don't know how many of you have seen uh, Evan Almighty. No shame if you haven't. It's a terrible movie. Uh, it's the less good sequel, all right, to the 2003 comedy, Bruce Almighty. But there's this pretty great scene in it where Evan, played by Steve Carell, is having a sit-down conversation with God, who's played by Morgan Freeman, Freeman obviously. Uh, and the conversation, in the conversation, he goes, I thought I prayed for patience. And Morgan Freeman, in his signature voice that I choose to believe is very similar to what God actually sounds like, he says, let me ask you something. If someone prays for patience, 
Do you think God gives her patience? Or does he give her the opportunity to be patient? If he prays for courage, does God give him courage? Or does he give him opportunities to be courageous? If someone prayed for their family to be closer, do you think God zaps them with warm, fuzzy feelings? Or does he give them opportunities to love each other? In general, I don't recommend anybody take their theological cues from Hollywood, but that one I think kind of nails it because the same is true for contentment. Some of us pray for contentment and what we're really hoping for is that God will just change our circumstances, that God will just give us the thing that we want. So poof, I'm content now because I have the thing that I was after all along. But do you know how Paul learned the secret of contentment with not having much? God had him thrown in prison where he didn't have much. We have to learn to see things differently is kind of the point. These circumstances might be the very vehicle which God will use to teach us the secret. And the truth that I hope some of you find encouraging today is that for some of us, the only thing maybe standing in the way of you and your contentment is you. It might be the only thing standing in your way. And I don't say that to kick you while you're down or make you feel bad, but just simply because I want you to know that if you spend your life locked into believing, if I just have what they have, or believing that this next thing or this next step or that next relationship, that next zero in the bank account is what you need to be content, you just got to know you're chasing a pipe dream. You're chasing a pipe dream and you're standing in your own way of the joy that you actually want. The secret of contentment is learned. And if you don't learn it, you're gonna give your life to being perpetually frustrated. If not depressed, and more importantly, it will rob you of savoring the blessings of God that are right in front of you. So maybe you didn't get that raise that you were expecting. Or maybe you're a working mother and you never wanted to be. Maybe your life or your family just hasn't turned out exactly the way that you thought it would. Maybe it's not, maybe it's less Instagram worthy than you wished it could be. Embrace that. Embrace it. Because God just might have something for you there. Something he wants to do in you. Holiness he wants to cultivate in and through you. Joy he wants to bless you with. Know that in those situations, Jesus has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you, but he is right there with you. And he has something for you there, potentially something far greater than even what you could think to ask or imagine. And this might be the very circumstance that he wants to use to shape you and change you in glorious, glorious ways, just like he did for Paul. So embrace your circumstance, whatever it may be. The second one would be to intentionally give. Intentionally give. Now, this one might sound a little out of left field for you, uh, but I think as you'll see, it's, it's really not. In fact, as Paul wraps up, he implies that the Philippians' generosity is actually what's got them traveling down the same road towards the secret he has found as well. So let me show you what I mean. Pick it up in verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent, uh, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. All right, so a few things up front. Evidently, the Philippian church was one of the most consistently generous churches towards Paul and his ministry. In the beginning, they were the only church that financially supported the work that he was doing. For what it's worth, this feels like it's a good place just to mention that there is a difference between being situationally generous and consistently generous. Being situationally generous is when we say things like, oh yeah, I totally love to give, if there's a need. If there's a need, I'm going to give. If something comes up and I can, I will totally be generous towards it. And that's great. We should all feel all the freedom and the blessing to be situationally generous. But I think more of what the scriptures would teach us to do is be consistently generous, to think that all of our money and stuff as belonging to God and to, as a regular practice, budget and set aside money to be generous with, regardless of whether or not there's a need. So just to give you an example of what I'm talking about. So for example, my family are missionary members here, and so that means we give 10% of our income every month, and it's a sacrifice, yeah, to be sure, uh, but to be honest, it's not all that hard for us because we don't look at that money as ours. Like we don't look at that money and go, that's mine. Instead, we say that money already belongs to our church family and we use it to help us exist. It allows you to be welcomed in here uh, and to hopefully have the air on so that you're not sweating profusely and to have uh, opportunities for our kids to be taught about Jesus in age-appropriate ways. But for additional generosity, we found that if we wait until there's a need, that money becomes really hard to part with. Like if we just wait for an opportunity, it gets really difficult for us to actually want to be generous with it. But if we budget for generosity and we have money set aside, well, then honestly, it's a little bit more like going to Target with money that you saved up, but like way better. We get to go look for opportunities to meet a need people to bless, a neighbor in need, a missionary to support, somebody from Life Group who could just use a little bit extra this month. And I love what Paul implies about this way of living. Like notice what he says in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. That even though he greatly appreciates the gift, which he absolutely does, and he considers it a wonderful, wonderful thing, that's not what Paul is really after for the Philippians. What he's really after, what he's really excited for, is the fruit that their giving actually produces in them. And here's the idea. It's that our giving actually gives us something in return. Our giving gives us something. I'll let you in on a little secret. Uh, pastors don't like talking about money any more than you like hearing us talk about it, okay? Let me just put that out there for you. Uh, it can make things awkward, but if Jesus is to be believed when he says that our hearts and our wallets are intimately connected, then I'm not doing my job if I don't talk to you about it. And if Jesus is to be believed that giving is actually for our good, then I am withholding joy and goodness from you if I don't talk about these things with you. And the truth for all of us, myself included, is that giving gives you something in return. And so here's what I would submit. Like, what if, what if we think about contentment all wrong? What if we think about it all wrong? We tend to think consciously or otherwise that contentment must precede giving, that it has to go before we give, that we can't give until we're content. But what if that is actually backwards? What if that's backwards? 
What if they have a much more symbiotic relationship than that? What if you have to do things that you think will cost you your contentment and that is what actually leads you to having it? What if you had to choose between having more than you need and being discontent or sacrificing things that you want and becoming full? Biblically speaking, it seems that that is exactly how it works. That giving helps us learn the secret of contentment. Proverbs 11, 24 through 25 puts it like this. It says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want, only suffers discontent. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. Or in Jesus's own words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. More blessed, not just as blessed, not equally as blessed, but more blessed to give than to receive. And to be clear, the promise is not health and wealth and Bentleys and lakefront properties, but it's that giving gives us something in return. It presses us into the reality that Jesus is more than enough, all right? He is what we need. His kingdom and his purposes are what are most important in this life. And above all, he is the one who ultimately provides. Giving is a way we confess these things with our money to where we say, Jesus, you are what is most important. You are what I need. And you are the one that I am actually believing is gonna come through for me. You are the one who I think actually provides me security that my bank account could never actually do. Intentional giving is actually the primary way that the Spirit loosens the stranglehold of things like covetousness and jealousy and greed on our hearts, which are what really lie at the root of all of our discontentment. And this is why we've made it one of our covenant practices as missionary members. And I love how Paul hints about these things in the last few verses. In verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says to the Philippians, he calls their gift a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. For the record, that's temple language that he's using. That's worship language. He's saying that every time this money comes out of your bank account, that's worship and God delights in it. It pleases him. He loves it. And to be honest with you guys, like this is something that I forget a lot. I often feel like giving is just that thing that I am supposed to do and I forget that it is a worshipful thing to do. And like all worship does, it changes us. It makes us into something new. The point remains that every time you give, it is a declarative action on your part that helps you deep down in your soul learn to say, Jesus is worthy and Jesus is what I need and Jesus will always be enough for me. For what it's worth, we are often more concerned about what we will miss out on when we give, but I believe we should be far more concerned with what we will miss when we don't. We should be far more concerned about what we miss out on when we don't give. It reminds me of a story uh, of, honestly, this is way back uh, earlier on in the life of our church when we were just a really young church plant, way before we had this building and we were meeting in the school. Uh, Brandon and I were, we were pouring over our budget and we realized that our current, at our current operation, like we weren't, we weren't going to be able to make it 
if giving didn't increase. We just had a significant budget shortfall and we realized, man, if something doesn't change, we're not gonna have a place to meet and one of the two of us is gonna be flipping burgers. We'll flip a coin, we'll figure it out, right? And I won't lie, like, we were a bit scared, just to be honest with you. Like, we were a bit scared, but we, we prayed, we came to God, and we just said, Father, we know that everything in the world is yours, and that we are your church, and that you love us far more than we could think or imagine, and we know that you, if you want us to keep doing what we're doing, you will provide. And so, God, we are just going to ask that you bring it. Would you bring it? Two days later, Brandon got a message from a member who said, hey, man, we realized that we need to start giving, and they covered every last penny of the shortfall. And for me, that was just one of those like cornerstone moments in our ministry together as a church. It's one of those stories in ministry that just give me such confidence that God is who he says he is and he is going to do the things that he says he's gonna do. Like sometimes I even get a little teared up just thinking about it. But the thing that stands out to me most about all of that isn't just the enormity of what God did and how miraculous that whole thing got pieced together. What really strikes me is the fact that those folks could have not given, right? Like they could have just gone on about their lives, done what they were already doing and used their money for whatever else they wanted. And honestly, nobody would have even batted an eye. It would have just been normal. But instead, they chose to worship Jesus and follow Jesus with their money. And because they did, Man, God did some amazing things. Because they did, this little church in Lexington, South Carolina, got to keep going, got to keep preaching the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. People, we got to see people, some of whose names you know, meet Jesus and have their eternities forever changed. We got to see marriages and families that were on the brink of breakdown find hope and healing in the power of the gospel. And that's the thing. This is what giving does. These are the opportunities before us when we give. Yes, giving might mean that I don't get the house that I always wanted. It might mean that my wife and I both work longer than we wanted to. It might mean that my kids don't get to do every extracurricular under the sun and that I drive my car until the wheels fall off. But it might also mean that I get to see people meet Jesus who never would have. I get to see churches planted and thrive when the culture around me is pivoting hard against the way of Jesus. It might mean that I get to see someone else's needs met and their lives changed, to see them stay afloat when the bottom drops out. And more importantly, and more specifically, it might just mean that I become a person who is deeply and unshakably content no matter what life throws my way. A person not controlled by jealousy or the thoughts of what I don't have. A person who lives as though there's plenty to go around not one who lives as though they're in perpetual competition with the rest of the world and everyone else they meet. A person of peace, a person of stability, and a person of joy, deep, unshakable joy that can do all things through him who gives me strength. And these are just the opportunities before us. You can be content. You can learn the secret to contentment. We, have to, we just have to learn to embrace the circumstances that God has us and learn to leverage the things he has given us to boldly declare, Jesus, you are enough, to teach our souls that these things are true. And so today, 
we're going to have a special meeting with missionary members uh, at the end of the gathering in just a few minutes. And we're actually going to talk about some practical ways that we as a church family can actually step into some of these things. Uh, we actually have some really cool opportunities for what it's worth. Uh, and so I'm really kind of pumped to get to share them all with you. But before we do, I just want to encourage you to assess where you're at this morning. To assess where you're at with contentment and discontentment and trusting the Lord and his provision and all of those things. Um, I just want to, I'll give you a few simple questions. Like, what do you actually believe you need to be content, right? Like, what do you believe you just got to have? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Do you trust that God holds you and that he will hold you and that he will provide for everything that you need? Is that where your faith is at? Or are you saying, no, 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 it's this other thing, this other thing that I must have? I'm praying all the more that we continue to be a people who become like Paul, who say, Jesus, you are what I need and you are enough and nothing else could ever change that. That's what I hope for us, for you and for me.